Good morning. Good to see everyone. Thanks, worship team. That was great. Great to be here today. We're going to continue our series on coming home. And I'm Lynn Kitchens and part of the team, Nehemiah teaching team. And today we've got trouble. Okay, how many of you were able to see the Christ Chapel production of Music Man? Julie was actually with the star in that, one of our own worship team members. Um, it was just fabulous, and it had that great song in there, You Got Trouble, Trouble in River City. Remember there was um, this Harold Hill, and he wanted to tell, he wanted to fleece all the people in the town, so he told the moms, their kids were all going to slide that slippery slope into rebellion because a pool table was coming to town. So here's some of the words. Yes, we got lots and lots of trouble. I'm thinking of the kids in knickerbockers, shirt tail, young ones peeking in the pool hall window after school. Look, folks, right here in River City, trouble with capital T. That rhymes with P, and that stands for pool. Okay, River City really didn't have any trouble. Harold Hill was the trouble with uh, River City. But when we study Nehemiah, we're going to see Jerusalem has got real trouble. has to do with their walls. So we got trouble right here in Jerusalem City. Trouble with capital T, and that rhymes with W, and that stands for wall. <laughs> That's the best I could do. look at the troubles in Judah and Jerusalem physically and spiritually and see how God used Nehemiah. It is really an inspiring story and there's so much we can learn about how he responds to those troubles and uh, how he is used by God in such a mighty way. So we're going to learn a lot about that. But we're closing the book of Ezra. Um, we're opening the book of Nehemiah. So I thought it would be a good time just to take a deep breath, um, a little review, remind ourselves of everything Deb taught us so well the first week about the history of Israel, just really short, and then see where Nehemiah fits into the picture. So you should have on your verse sheet a little chart. You will get that out. Okay, we know that Israel was born with the calling of Abraham to become the father of a great nation. And so on your outline, I said Israel had a divine mission from God. God was calling out to them, beginning with Abraham, Be my people. Worship me. I'm the one true God. Worship me. Be the only nation that knows me and is a light and a, become a blessing to these other nations that live in the darkness. Be my people. And they were. And they were a united kingdom. And God was their king. But pretty soon they started looking around at the other nations and saying, man, they've got kings with skin on. That's what we want. We want a king like the other nations. Even though God was their king, the mission was they would be his people God says, all right, he raises up King Saul, who turns away from God. He raises up King David, the greatest king Israel ever had, a man after God's own heart. And then Solomon, David's son, comes along, and he begins his reign like his father David, remembering we've got a divine mission, we're the people of God, 
But then Solomon makes the big mistake of marrying a few too many women. Like maybe hundreds. And most of them are pagan women from foreign nations. And soon, just as God had warned them, his heart begins to turn and his affection begins to follow the gods of his wives. And he ends his reign worshiping the wrong, untrue, false gods. And so when his son comes on the scene, Israel is in trouble at this point. We got trouble right here in Jerusalem City. And with Solomon's death and the mistakes his young his son makes, the kingdom splits. So we've talked about that. You've got the ten tribes. Out of the 12 tribes of Israel that went north, made Samaria their capital. They were called the Northern Kingdom. And they had their own king after king after king. And they totally ignored their divine calling from God. And then the Southern Kingdom, which was two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And they kept Jerusalem as their capital. And they had lots of evil kings as well. But every once in a while, God would raise up a king who remembered the God of their fathers. For 209 years, God's people behaved as if they were not the people of God. And so God had to send his judgment and his discipline to them. 722 B.C., Assyria conquers the northern kingdom. They never recover. Judah existed another 134 years, and then Babylon came in and conquered Judah because of their disobedience as well. And they are taken by Babylon into captivity for 70 years. But this is how incredibly gracious God is. Even during their captivity, they are listening to the prophecies and the prophets saying, you know, God has still has a future for you. God has a future for his people, and he has a future for his land. And um, they have another mission. It was an eternal mission. He had planned a divine future for them, and so he's saying to them, not only be my people, I planned on you being my people forever. Be mine forever. And we're going to see this take place in the millennial kingdom when Christ is reigning. But we also see bright moments in Israel's history of the remnant and those who choose to follow God in the physical and spiritual rebuilding after the captivity. So the book of Ezra, we studied, these were the Jews. We looked at those who chose to return after 70 years to the ruins of Judah and return to their faith in the promises of God. And remember who came first? Zerubbabel. Um, And if you take your pen and write next to his name on that sheet, Temple Rebuilt. When Zerubbabel arrived with the first group, they rebuilt the temple. Fifty-seven years goes by before Ezra the priest comes. Right next to his name, people reformed. This is what Deb taught about last week, and he had, did a great spiritual work in this group of people. Thirteen years went by from this point after um, Ezra's group, and a third return to Judah came with Nehemiah, and next to his name, right, Walls Rebuilt. 
because of his amazing leadership, the walls of Jerusalem would be rebuilt and the gates would be put back together. And Ezra, we're going to see him again in the book of Nehemiah as this priest who really God uses to build the spiritual life of the people in this city. So what else do we know about Nehemiah? Over the weeks, we're going to see these things. Nehemiah was used by God to encourage his people to remember those divine instructions he gave them. Be my people. Be mine forever. And he was someone that we are called to be. Ambassadors for God. Because God has that same invitation for people today. Be mine and be mine forever. And you and I have the job that Nehemiah has. We're in the business of rebuilding broken lives with that invitation from God to offer the good news of his great love for them. We are in the business of building faith into broken hearts. Look at 2 Corinthians 5 on your verse sheet. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our job. Change lives. Rebuild lives. What a great offer. God has for everybody in the world. Be mine and be mine forever. I first heard this incredible invitation when I was 15. And I went to Wisconsin on a Young Life weekend camp. And a man named Rick Yates shared the gospel with me. I was so excited to finally understand what salvation was all about. And I accepted Christ that weekend. Okay, two years go by. I go to a Young Life camp in Colorado. And guess who the speaker was? Rick Yates. So I learned more about God's offer to me and and what it means to grow in Christ, and that was really neat. So then I'm in college, and I go to another Young Life camp, and this is where I met Ted, actually, my husband. And uh, he's doing program with this guy, the speaker, who's named Rick Yates. And I thought, man, is God running out of ambassadors? Anyway... It really encouraged me at that point. I really remember thinking I was so much older than when I came to Christ. I was probably five years older. I looked at that man and thought, this is what you do everywhere you go. This is how God's using you. You are God's ambassador. He was still passing out God's invitations. While Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls, he was God's ambassador, and he was rebuilding the faith of the Jews in Judah. So we kind of left Israel in disgrace here. So let's see a little bit more about Nehemiah, who he was. First, let me just say he was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. And this was in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. And remember, um, Babylon had been the world power. Now Persia was. And he had been his cupbearer. He would test the king's wine, that means, to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. And if that happened just once, you were out of a job. Uh, And on to the next poor cup beer. I can't imagine that being your job every day. Well, I might see you later, might not. Okay, he also guarded the sleeping quarters of the king. And probably as far as Nehemiah went, his parents and maybe grandparents would have been taken captivity in um, 
Jerusalem by the Babylonians years earlier. And Nehemiah was probably born into captivity in Persia. Here he's at the Winter Palace in Susa. It's the capital of Persia, but in reality, Susa was also the capital of the whole world. And as a cupbearer, Nehemiah was like a protective screen between the king and the people. And so knowing this, we can deduce this was a, a wise man, this was a strong man, this was a leader. Uh, someone this morning said he was probably very likable. I think that's right. God's favor was on him, and he was responsible, and he was trustworthy. One person said it was like sort of a prime minister and a master of ceremonies being rolled up into one. That was Nehemiah. Now, here's the more important part about it. If you had that kind of access to the king every day, you were the closest person to the king. You then had tons of influence in the whole empire. That was Nehemiah. Some people said the cupbearer to a king was only second to the king himself in the influence that they could make. Now, I think that's why we see this special visit about to happen when we open up in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah's going about his business, doing what he wants. He hears this knocking on the palace door. He opens the door. It's his brother, Hanani, some other people from Jerusalem. He lets them in, and and Nehemiah immediately wants to know uh, what's the condition of God's people in God's land, and they want to report to Nehemiah these things. And maybe because they knew nobody had the ear of King Artaxerxes like Nehemiah. God providentially placed Nehemiah in a position where he could lay out the needs and the petitions of his people before someone who had the highest authority anybody could have. That's where God put Nehemiah. Let's look at uh, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. We've got trouble. Nehemiah asks about two things, the remnant that survived the exile and about the city of Jerusalem. And by using the word remnant, Nehemiah may have been thinking about the words of Isaiah when he prophesied about this group of people. This would be a word used to describe the small remaining portion of Israel that would now hold all these divine promises of God. Look on your verse sheet at Isaiah 10. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Though your people, O Israel, be like the sand by the sea, only a remnant will return. Now, when Nehemiah hears these words from his brother and this group from Jerusalem, Uh, It overwhelms him. 
Jerusalem, he realizes, is a city of broken walls and broken hearts. Broken walls, that's the great trouble. Broken hearts, that's the great disgrace. They're hurting both outwardly and inwardly. And I don't think this destruction they're talking about is about when Babylon uh, first conquered Jerusalem. They're talking about, remember when we went through Ezra and they were rebuilding under Zerubbabel and they were rebuilding the walls and the gates and that group got together, the enemies of the Jews, and sent a letter to King Artaxerxes and said, these guys, hey, they're going to be a threat to your kingdom. You better stop this building. And Ezra chapter 4, King Artaxerxes himself stopped the rebuilding of the walls in the city. And we learned in chapter 4 that they did this with power and force, which means this wasn't a nice little, please stop, here's a letter from the king. No, it was violent, it was cruel, and it probably added to the damage that the walls already had. This is what they're referring to. There's a great chance that Nehemiah knew King Artaxerxes had put a stop to the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. And if that's the case, I think that may have been why he immediately was asking his brother, what's going on now? What's happening in the city? Okay, so I want us to stop and vision the city of Jerusalem. We left it with our last study in Ezra, the temple's rebuilt. So I want us to look out at the temple. It's a picture of a faith being restored and born again, and that's exciting. But we take our eyes to the outskirts, and all we see are rocks and dirt and dust and rubble and empty buildings because nobody wants to live in there because there are no walls. The walls are crumbled. This is what we're looking at. Um, It's almost a little bit looking like a ghost town since people aren't really living there. The trouble with all of that is Jerusalem was defenseless. Jerusalem was unprotected by its enemies, and that's why people weren't living in there as well. So broken walls, that meant great trouble. Now think if you were the enemy. Look back out at the city again. Before you really think a whole lot about the temple, you're going to first see the rubble. You're going to see the broken down walls, the gates on fire. You're going to see demolition all around it. So to her enemies, Jerusalem and their God, Yahweh, that's just a joke. Look at where's the mighty God of Israel. Look at their city. Look at his house. Look at where he's supposed to be living in Jerusalem. Where is the mighty God? The shame of Jerusalem reflected upon God in the eyes of their enemies. And this mocking was a huge disgrace that broke the hearts of the people. But here's the greatest trouble of all. Without the strong wall surrounding the city, Jerusalem is vulnerable to the culture around them, the the influence of these people around them, the preservation of their community of faith is endangered, They can't really practice that community, practice the traditions that kept their faith set apart from the rest of the world. And so they are in a dangerous, vulnerable place. Their mission to be the people of God is hard to accomplish without the walls of the city up. 
I think all these truths hit Nehemiah in such a hard way that his legs couldn't even really hold him up. So we've got trouble, and what can a cupbearer do? We've got to understand that when we see what Nehemiah did, these are things we can do when trouble is around us. So go ahead and look at um, verse 4. Nehemiah says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now this is even more amazing when we consider this fact that Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. Nehemiah had never gone to the rabbis and sat at their feet in Jerusalem. Nehemiah had never gone to the schools to learn the law in the land of God in Jerusalem. It would have been so easy for him just to distance himself emotionally from what was going on over there. It tells us so much about his faith. He believed the promises of God. He believed their mission, be mine and be mine forever. He took seriously who they were, and so he aligned his passion with God's passion, and he cared about what God cared about. And it caused him to weep and mourn for God's people, weep and mourn for God's city, weep and mourn for God's reputation. And this wasn't an hour-long weeping and mourning. This went on for 40 days. Weeping and mourning. And you know what? That was a good thing. Sometimes, I think in the Christian community, we like to say, stop, where's your faith? Pick yourself up. Go. You know, sometimes it's good to mourn. Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time to mourn. When he mourned, it was the beginning of the mighty healing work in Judah. But before he went to build the wall, he had to weep over the ruins. I read this quote. Let us learn this lesson from Nehemiah. You never lighten the load unless you have first felt the pressure in your own soul. You're never used of God to bring blessing until God has opened your eyes and made you see things as they really are. There's no other preparation for Christian work than that. We probably don't weep and mourn enough. We emotionally distance ourselves from hard things. Jesus said, you know, you, you will have trouble around you all the time. Some are going to be your fault. Some are going to be faults of others, like Sally talked about this morning. Um, some troubles are because of sin. Some just involve deep needs that people have. But if we don't look at them all through God's eyes, these will be troubles that don't go away. We are called to care about our sin, other sins, the church, the needy, our neighbor, truth, justice, holiness, we should weep and mourn over those things. Do you remember the story of Eli the priest? He had two sons, and they didn't uh, follow God. They were blatantly disobedient to God. And the scriptures tell us Eli the priest never rebuked them. So did his troubles go away? It just brought more and more troubles. We have to care about what God cares about. Eli's heart should have been pierced over the sins of his sons. Look at Psalm 97.10. Let those who love the Lord hate evil. And look at this next story I think is interesting. This is in the church in Corinth. 
Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? We think, well, that's not very loving. No, it is loving because then he can get better. He can weep over the ruins and then he can start to get better. And the church would be healthier. It takes courage to align our passion with God's passion and care about what he cares about. It takes a heart of compassion to care about the needs of those around us because it means we're going to hurt. It means we have to get involved. It means it's going to be hard. But we have to do it anyway. That's how we demonstrate the sacrificial way God loves us. Look on your verse sheet. Ephesians 5. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. My sister-in-law, Susan Kitchens, for those of you that know her, this is her. I mean, she really does care about other people's needs and troubles in their lives and what's going on. And one day she called me up, and it was so interesting, and she's like, I'm in the grocery store. I'm like, okay. And she goes, this woman's being really mean to her son and saying really hateful things to him. What should I do? So we were like coming up with a plan on the phone while Susan's stalking her with her grocery cart. Because she could not stand to know that little boy was going to leave with only those words. It'd be so easy just to distance yourself from that. And I was so moved, so we were praying, and so we came up with the plan. And Susan went down the aisle, you know, she just kept going up and down the same aisles. And she finally waited till she got in front of him again, and the, the evil mom was still berating her son. And Susan kind of got down low like she was looking at the can of peas. And said, wow, you're a sweet boy. What a wonderful little boy you are. And the evil mom began yelling at Susan and saying, you're only saying that because you heard what I'd say to him. Get away. And Susan ran out of the store, ran from the evil mom. But maybe that boy will always remember that someone looked him in the eyes and said, you're a wonderful little boy. Caring about what God cares about. In order to rebuild broken lives, we first have to weep over the ruins. Our life or someone else's. And then we seek the face of God. Uh, we're going to see Nehemiah do that. And I love it that I wrote the face of God because did you notice he says, Oh God, open your eyes, open your ears. It's like Nehemiah really is seeing God's face as he's praying this prayer. He seeks the God who gave Israel the mission to be his forever. And one of the ways he does this is he fasts, and I said he denied himself physical sustenance so that he might find spiritual sustenance. That's what fasting is. We set aside meals. We set aside other pleasures to stay at the throne of God in deeper communion with God at that time. And then he prayed. That's a great idea when trouble comes. And here's what he does first. He focuses on the character of God. What can cheer you up more than that? What 
can put anything into better perspective than that. What can build your faith? That God can do something about this better than that. Look at verse 5. I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. When we begin this way, we automatically get out of the way. We take a deep breath. It's a cleansing spiritual breath. Our situation seemed hopeless. It doesn't anymore. We rest in who he is and what he can do. We're reminded of his compassion and his power. We're reminded that he hears and he wants to answer us. Our faith becomes strong. And for Nehemiah, this was a time of remembrance. That God will be faithful to his covenant promises of Israel because he's great, he's awesome, and he's loving. But did you notice his very next thought? That this kind of a God, when he has a relationship with someone, has an expectation for those who want to say that they are his. Look back at verse 5. He keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey him. His commands. His thought is that God expected something from Israel. They expect, he expected Israel's love and obedience, and so he's understanding their calling before God. And I think I, I like the order of that here, because once we're focusing on the character of God, what kind of happens naturally next? Then we begin to focus on our own character. We think, you know, this... This is who God is, and he loves me, and I love him, and I want to follow him. And what, what calling has he put on my life, and how am I doing on that? Sometimes you may know a specific thing he's asked you to do, specific changes he wants you to make, specific people he wants you to reach out to. And you begin to look and analyze your own character, which is the right thing to do before our holy God, and this leads us to confession. When we take a good look at who God's called us to be, we don't approach him with anger and demanding and complaining because we begin to realize and acknowledge our sinfulness. And as we pray over other sins, that's a great time to also realize I'm in the exact same place. I'm a sinner that needs the grace and mercy of God. Look at verse 6. He says, Let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. So when we are confessing about other sins, which we have to do when there's trouble around often, it should remind us to be praying and reflecting upon our own. And it's harder to exaggerate the sins of others when we start humbly confessing our own sins as well. We see here that Nehemiah is humble, and as he prays over Israel's sins, he calls Israel's sins his own sins, which is amazing because he lives in Persia. But he sees his sins 
as part of a larger canvas of Israel's wrongs, which accounts for all the displeasure of God that has fallen upon them. God had given them ways to be blessed. They chose to chase other gods. And Nehemiah knows those ruined walls in Jerusalem reflect the ruined lives, the ruined faith of the Jewish people in their disobedience. But the great thing is he also knows the promises of a loving God, and so he appeals to the mercies and promises of God. Look at verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ears be attentive to this prayer of your servant. Nehemiah has come to God empty-handed, but he has not come to him uninvited. He knows what God has promised, that if his people return to him, he will gather them again in Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah's prayer is based on his understanding of the promises of God. In verse 10, he quotes the words of Moses. That's how well Nehemiah knows the word of God. When Moses was on Mount Sinai pleading for the people of Israel, um, they were threatened with extinction at that time. And I think Nehemiah is looking at the situation in Jerusalem now and saying, threatened with extinction again. I'm going to pray the prayer of Moses here to God and call upon him. But I think Nehemiah's prayer is powerful because he knows God and his promises. How does he know it? He knows the words of God. He knows the stories of God. He knows the law of God. And just try to think, what would Nehemiah be praying right now if he didn't know any of that? How much strength and power would there be in his prayer if he had no idea of really what God's plans were for Israel and who God really was? His prayers would not have reflected a strong faith. And it made me think, how much stronger can my prayers be when I, in this word, understand the promises and the character of God? Knowing this makes for a more powerful prayer life. I love how Nehemiah ends his prayer with this very specific request. Verse 11. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Okay, so Nehemiah has just talked back to God about here's what you said you're going to do and this is what you want to do. And so I'm going to um, want what you want, God. I want what you want. I'm going to align my will with your will. And he knows that he alone holds that unique position uh, to approach the king with a request to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And remember, he's the very king who ordered the walls to stop in Ezra chapter 4, not too many years before. Only King Artaxerxes could reverse the command that he gave 
those years ago. I love that Nehemiah did not just sit by, just hoping the best for his people. To me, that's part of prayer. While we're praying these needs, we're saying to God, how do you want me to partner with you in this situation? What part do you want me to play? And that's what Nehemiah is asking right here. How can I do that? And he decided, I'll lead the people myself. I'm in this kind of a position. God, I want what you want. I've told the story before of uh, my daughter, Cassie, when she was in first grade. Uh, It was so neat because it really made a mark in her heart, even as a first grader, and we still talk about it. She was in a class, and the teacher was having everybody stand up out of their desk, stand next to their desk, say their name, and what they wanted to be when they grew up. So you had, you know, a million firemen, Joe, Bo, fireman, Bob, Lala, fireman, Doctor, mailman, you know, everybody's a nurse, a a teacher, whatever. And they get to this one little boy. I can't remember his name. I totally remember what he looks like. He was real little, real cute, giant blue eyes. And he had bad eyesight, so he wore big black glasses, so his eyes were giant. And he had white blonde hair. And so they get to him, and he stands up and stands next to his thing and says his name and says, when I grow up, I want to be a man of God. And he sits down. I thought, that is so awesome. As a first grader. And Cassie even came home and told me. I think the whole class was like, what? What does that mean? (laughs) When we decide that, God will use us. I don't think Nehemiah decided at this moment, I think I'll be a man of God. I'll go to Jerusalem. He said that long time before this. And so he was prepared to be used by God. That's what we can do. He says, give me success and grant me favor in the presence of this man. We all know who this man is, King Artaxerxes. And don't you love the last sentence? Because I am the cupbearer to the king. I think this was put last after the prayer right there so the reader would go, oh, I get it. God's going to use Nehemiah to help rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. He prayed this way for four months. He had this huge obstacle before him because it could mean his life to go before the king and say, would you, for me, would you just reverse that command you gave years ago that's been standing for 20 years or so? Uh, a frightening moment for him. And we could say, he's got trouble. And he's got God. Trouble looks different when we have God. That's our story. We always have somewhere to go. We always have someone who can do something about the trouble. We always have someone who will partner with us in whatever that situation might be. We go to God. We care about what he cares about. We seek his face. We align our will with his. And then we get to work as his partner. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. We don't lose heart. 
Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. What is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Okay, so get your pen. I want you to write this under the title. Because we've all got trouble. I wonder who could raise their hand today and say, I don't have any trouble. We want you to come up and testify. We've all got trouble right underneath that. But I've got God. I've got God. What a great truth. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercies, your power, your love that is unfailing. Remind us that trouble cannot affect our relationship with you. It can only be used to draw us closer to you, to be used by you, to proclaim you, and to bring you glory. Remind us of that. Deepen our times with you that we can be used by you and thank you. We love you, God, and pray in Christ's name. Amen.